Welcome to Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis. You can check out my books and social media at mindymcginnis.com and visit the Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire blog at writerwriterpantsonfire.blogspot.com. Today's guest is Elsie Chapman, whose work includes the YA sci-fi series Dueled and Divided, as well as the upcoming Along the Indigo. Born and raised in Western Canada and a graduate of UBC with a degree in English literature, Elsie Chapman currently lives in Tokyo with her family. Elsie joined me today to talk about how so much of the pain of publishing goes unspoken and the stress of losing an agent. Up next, after this word from our sponsor. Walk through an enchanted autumn wood, where leaves shine like red candy apples by day, blood is spilled by flesh-eating monsters at night, and the rules are simple. Do not travel from the path. Do not linger after dark. Do not ignore the calling. The Wood by Chelsea Bobulski. So I usually start by asking you about your background and if you had any formal training or anything like that that led you into writing. And then also tell us about your agent hunt and your experience with the query process. I have a Bachelor of Arts in English Literature from UBC, but that's about it. I don't have any tech classes or workshops um, to my credit. And I basically just read a lot. I think that's probably the biggest thing that helped me start writing. I, and I was a stay-at-home mom when I wrote Duels. I actually wrote while everybody was sleeping, and it was my second manuscript. The first one was absolutely terrible. It was like this complete, really bizarre mashup of like my favorite plot points and favorite characters from other books. And, and I think looking back on it now, I really kind of had to get that out of my system before I could write Duel. So my first agent, I just researched online. I did not know anything about the industry at all. Like I didn't know any authors in real life. I didn't know anything about why. I didn't even know YA was a thing. But I went online. I went to sites like Absolute Right. I was a member of the forums. Query Tracker, which I think might still be around. Agent Query, I was on there. And Literary Rambles, which I'm not sure is still around anymore. But that was a big one for kids' agents. Got some offers and I chose... I guess basically on gut. With my second agent, I was more careful in terms of how I approached the process. I knew a lot more about the industry by then. I knew a lot more about agents in general. But just from getting to know other authors, you hear stuff about the industry and about agents and you can ask and not feel bad about asking. I was really careful who I queried, was more careful about looking up who they represented already and what kind of books they had represented. And and also really importantly was their overall sales record. Did they sell, for example, just one book from a lot of authors? Like I really, really wanted an agent that was a long-term career agent. I didn't want an agent to sell a particular book and that was it. Also really important, I think, is to look for an agent that their working style meshes with yours. I really wanted an agent that was editorial, and I know some you know, writers aren't into that, but I needed that. So right now my agent is, my second agent is Victoria Marining of the Irene Goodman Agency, and I love her. She's perfect for me because, you know, I can bounce ideas off her and not feel weird about it. I can email her anytime and not feel bad. And so for me, her style works really well. You know, you hear both good and bad things about agents, and a lot of people don't talk about when you're querying an agent is to try to find out why a client left an agent. Like, nobody really talks about that. They talk about, well, who do they represent now? But 
I think a bigger aspect really is to see why someone would leave an agent. A lot of the times that stuff is not online, which is kind of unfortunate because I think it can help a lot. And a lot of the time that kind of stuff comes through later on when you get to know other authors and they'll tell you stuff. But after a couple of years of experience, yeah, I definitely knew a lot more and I knew more people to ask. And I think that really helps in terms of querying because starting out, you are you are, you're just, you're going in there and you're, you're looking for just an agent. You don't really know. There's a lot of, I wouldn't say that there's pressure, but there's definitely a culture of almost forced happiness, especially in the YA arena. We really want to celebrate somebody sold a book, somebody did this, somebody did that, but we don't tweet. Yeah. I left my agent. We don't tweet my proposal just rejected. We never talk about those downsides. So from the outside looking in, it looks like we're all having a great party and we're all best friends and everything's awesome. You know, that's simply not true. People leave their agents because there are working issues with them or personality issues. Sometimes it's not the kind of stuff that actually gets out there. So that's the kind of the point of the podcast in a lot of ways is I'm trying to demystify and demagic, trying to take the glitter cannons out of the process here so that people understand the actual nitty gritty of publishing and uh, querying especially. It's an ugly process. On some days, you just don't know why you're doing it. You honestly lose heart. You wonder if you, you should be doing this. And I think, you know, honestly, social media does not help. It's great for celebrating, and I think you should celebrate. But I also think it's it's a little bit dishonest in that we don't talk about the, the low points. I think publishing is like, what, 75% low points? It's so much of a grind, and I think nobody talks about that. I mean, obviously people know, but nobody talks about it. Well, we know among ourselves. We know among each other. Yes. We'll send each other emails or we'll get together over drinks at a conference or something. And you say, so what's going on with you? And no one ever says, well, <laughs> I sold this book. Because we know that you know that I sold the book because you saw it on social media. What we say to each other is, well, this is the book I didn't sell. This is the book of my heart that I've been working on for 15 years and no one wants it. Yep. Oh, yeah. In a way, you know, it would be nice if everybody did kind of talk about that, but I also understand why people don't, because it's hard to focus on that kind of stuff. You want to focus on the good stuff. So, yeah, yeah I understand. It's just, it's it's very, it's very, it's hard. <laughs> That's basically it. It's hard. It's, it's misleading. It's misleading to people that would like to find a way. Looks like a great happy party, and like, we are all just psyched 100% of the time, and most of us are sitting alone in a corner most of the time holding a manuscript that no one wants to buy. <laughs> Another thing which is true is that a lot of times that you do get the authors who do talk about the low points, they've already made it. Yeah. They feel okay talking about this stuff because, hey, they've got some great stuff happening on the side. But, you know, the authors that literally try for 10, 15, 20 years and they don't make it and they don't sell, they're not going to be out there telling their sob stories because nobody's going to care, which is sad because, you know what, those writers, they have a lot to teach. That's just the way it works. Aspiring authors aren't going to want to hear about writers who didn't make it. I think it's important for writers who have succeeded but who we're not overnight successes to talk about that. That's one reason why I always say I was querying for 10 years. I wrote four novels before I wrote my debut. A lot of people have, like they've trunked so many novels and, and who knows when the next one's going to be. That might be the one that gets you an agent or sells. I was ready to quit. I was done. I had been querying for 10 years. I had written four novels that were trunked and I decided I had my bachelor's in English, just like you. And I'd been working as an aide in a library for like three or four years at that point. And I was like, okay, um, this was my pipe dream. It's not working out. Financially, things were terrible because it was the aid pay. 
I'm going to go get my master's in library science so that I actually be a district librarian and, and that's what I'm going to do. That's my career path. And then I watched the documentary that gave me the idea for Not a Drop Drink and I said, all right, one more book. I'm giving it one more shot. And you felt it, right? Yep. You felt the need to tell this book and I think that's what's really important too. Yeah, absolutely. Well, and see, that's the thing. I, I tell people this all the time. Over those 10 years, I seriously dislike all of the advice out there when people are like, never give up. I'm like, no, go ahead. Give up. It's okay. You cannot. I mean, I gave up so many times over those 10 years. You cannot be constantly writing things you know no one wants to read. Yep. Sending out queries that you know are going to get rejected. It is. It will bruise your soul. Yes. I mean, sometimes you have to quit. You have to say, I am taking five months, six months off. I am not writing gonna let everything settle i've gotta recoup like spiritually before i can come back into this fight oh yeah for sure to be really brutally honest not everybody's gonna make it you can be determined as heck you can keep on writing but it doesn't mean that you will necessarily sell and i think that's a really hard thing for most writers to accept it's not like i think that a lot of the writers that do succeed are actually much more talented than the ones that don't. It's just a lot of the time it's luck. It's just things lining up perfectly and the timing works out. That's really hard because sometimes I do think talented writers do slip away. Like they do slip through. They just don't make it, you know, and it's sad. It is very sad. And I know there are plenty of aspiring writers that probably look at published books and think, uh, my book is better than that book. And you know what? It might be. It might be. It is the brutal truth. You're totally right about that. You wrote four books before you sold. You had the talent to actually learn from each of those books that you wrote. Like you learned something. Some writers just don't. Sometimes they need a kick in the pants to do something different. And it's true that you have to learn from your mistakes. You are totally right about that. I really thought that I was a good instinctive natural writer when I first started. And I wasn't. Like I'm not just being fake humble. I would go back to those manuscripts that I wrote like just kind of mining them for ideas or dialogue. They're terrible. I mean, they were absolutely awful. They were unpublishable crap. Really got to be able to recognize that in yourself. You can't just be like, I'm a diamond in the rough. I am an undiscovered genius. It's like, well, you might be, but chances are there's something you're not doing right. You need to figure out what it is. Yeah, you do. And also another thing is you can sell pub now. Some of that pub, pub stuff is just as good as traditionally published stuff. Or maybe it's just so different that it would never have worked in traditional publishing anyways. And that's what I always tell people. There is nothing wrong with self-publishing. A lot of the stigma has been lost now. But you have to be aware of the different challenges because you're everything. You're the cover designer. You're the marketer. You're the interior designer. Yeah. You're the bank. You're the advertising man. Your school and library, like you're everything. You are everything. And you have to be prepared for that if you want to succeed in self publishing. Yeah. Oh, for sure. Like, I'm too lazy. I would never do it. I just can never. I can never. It is too much work. I don't mind actually the work in the writing. I am not good in, in terms of promotion and I cannot do that. Like, it's just not me. My promotion tends to move in the same circles. Like, you have your readership and it's a closed group. But you do really well. I know your promo. I think you've done a really good job. I've been following you since, you know, 2013, it's their debut year. And I think you've handled it really well. I look at it, it's helpful. Well, thank you. Up next, the luck of hitting a trend, the downside of that trend falling out of style, the different pressures of writing under contract versus writing for yourself, and what should and should not be expected of an author. Sixteen-year-old Heather fights with her impulse to self-harm, but when she visits family in Scotland, she discovers there is more to her compulsion, an ancestry filled with magic and hate. 
finding the truth might be the key to putting Heather's soul at rest, or it could slice her future deeper than any knife. Kirkus calls Bad Blood a thoroughly enjoyable contemporary gothic, and Booklist says it is a perfect choice for fans of chilling supernatural reads. Visit Demetria Lunetta's blog for a chance to win a signed copy. Well, let's talk about your debut, your debut series, Dueled and Divided, the first of which came out in 2013. Tell us about those. I literally hit on the end of the dystopian trend. Yeah, me too. And I remember thinking that I was really fortunate in terms of timing. And I didn't specifically write that book to try to sell. I'm personally a fan of dystopian and science fiction anyways. And I hope it comes back because I know that right now it's still not really popular in terms of editors. But I, I love it. I like reading that kind of stuff. So that's what I wrote. The truth is, if I wrote Duel now the way I wrote it then, I don't think it would even get me an agent now. They look for things that are selling and it wouldn't, have, it wouldn't sell now, right? The trends change so immense that when it actually happens, it's kind of like stunning because all of a sudden it's like, no, no dystopian at all. I think that if I wrote Duel today, it'd be very different. I think I've learned a lot in the last few years in terms of writing. But at the same time, I have a really hard time looking at my old stuff. I just don't read any of my books. I don't even look at them. There's a kind of rawness to the book that I think that I would never be able to replicate now. But when I wrote it, didn't know anything about editing. I didn't know anything about plotting or <laughs> nothing like that. I just wrote it like I pantsed it. That's something I do miss a bit because I'm too immersed in how to write properly now. That's one thing that I really miss about being a debut. But that's part of the process as well, is that you write the books that you write, and then you, you evolve from them. If I didn't write it the way I wrote it, then I'd be a completely different writer by now. In terms of Divided, which was a sequel, I actually sold that. Like, I didn't have anything in my, in my head when I sold it. I didn't have a synopsis or anything. So it was different because it was the first book I wrote under contract with a deadline. And it was different because it wasn't just me anymore. It was about having to please your editor and your publishing house. So that was a complete different set of challenges, I think. And it was harder in a different way because all of a sudden it was like, wow, there's going to be people reading this. That changed everything for me, too, in terms of writing. It was like the next level. It's the first time you're actually writing as a job. The first book, it's a hobby. It's a hobby book. Now it has an audience and now you're writing under contract and you're writing for someone other than yourself. The thing is, when you're writing that debut, of course, you hope it sells. It might not right like you just don't know and then you have this book that's coming on a contract and you have to have it done by this date totally different experience it's gone from a hobby to to a job yes you get used to it though i am used to it now and it's interesting you were talking about how your process changed when you were writing dual you don't go with your gut as much i have that experience when i wrote my first book and then as you said when you're writing your, your second book which is your first book under contract and you have that pressure it does change your style you're more careful and you don't take risks, I think. And now I've gotten a little more accustomed to writing under contract. The only book I have ever sold that was finished was my debut. Everything else I have sold on proposal. So I've written under contract everything except for Not a Drop to Drink. You get used to it. I've started to absolutely write from my gut again. And it is very freeing. Those reins slacken. Like once you realize you can do this. You're able to do this every day. You think this is a fluke. I'm not actually a writer. You adjust. I am getting better about just writing from my gut again, even under contract. I've actually never written a book under proposal. Like I've, everything I've ever sold has been complete. So when I wrote, it was I wrote with the pressure, but with a different kind of pressure than you had. My pressure came from, will this sell? Versus this has to please everybody. So it's still pressure, but it's just slightly different. I do miss that though. I do miss the whole writing from your gut, just doing what you want. But I think you're right. Eventually, you know, you can do it. I think people that are not in the industry sometimes misread 
when we say things like you have to be practical. Like if you had an idea that you absolutely loved, but you knew wouldn't sell, would you write it? That's the question. And when you are doing this for a living, you do have to say, is this a good use of my time? I know it won't sell. But the truth is that if you love it, you'll write it anyway. I am working on a book right now set in Ohio in the year 1000. Okay, I want to read this book. It probably won't sell. Like, it's this weirdo clan of the cave bear kind of thing. And I'm like, I want to write that. It's a passion because you have to be passionate to actually sit down there and write 100,000 words for a book that you think might not sell. Those books that come out and all of a sudden people are talking about it, those are the books that are so different from everything else. I want to talk to you about geography. So you lived in Canada when your first two books were released. You've moved to Japan since then, which presents some really interesting issues for you when it comes to social media interaction. Right now it's 9.30 a.m. for me on August 3rd, and it's 10.30 for you on the same day. So you are coming to me from the future. I am. Like, this is so bizarre. (laughs) You're unlikely to be online to interact with readers because your books are published in the U.S. And so you're not going to be online when your readership is online generally with that kind of time difference. And I know you and I have talked before, you're not a huge social media animal. Do you think about that? Do you balance that? Like, what's your approach when you're thinking about time difference and social media? Okay, honestly, I don't really care about social media that much. I just don't. I might have cared about it more years ago when I was first starting out, but I'm jaded and old now, and I don't really care. Basically, I'm a night owl anyway, so I'm up till like 4 or 5 in the morning most of the time, 2 in the afternoon New York time. For the most part, I catch most of what's happening during the day anyways. I guess in my case, it worked out that I'm not really a big social media person because I don't feel like I'm missing out on anything. It's probably wrong of me to say that because for aspiring writers, a lot of the time, being online and active is a big important part to have a presence. But if I would much rather take that time and focus on writing, I don't think it does me any good or my book's any good to be online. Anything I could say, everybody else would say it a million times better. And also from Canada, I was in Vancouver, which is the West Coast, so I was already used to not being part of the everyday typical uh, publishing landscape because everything was on the East Coast and it was in the States. Even in Canada, most any book events or author events, most of them happen in Toronto, which is like East Coast as well. From the very beginning, I've never really been immersed in the whole book world. This kind of actually circles back to, like, I'm not sure if you were online when this happened. It was a few weeks ago when there was some bad advice going around about how all authors should be required to pay um, a certain amount to succeed and be, and be required to be online. This was from an agent, I won't say who, but they said that you should be required to put a certain part of your advance towards promotion and towards attending conferences and being online and being active socially. And I just thought that was the worst advice ever because you know what, that's what publicists are for. You know, the world's big now and you know, you don't have to be living in the U.S. to be, to be traditionally published with a New York publisher. So for all those international authors, you expect them to file overseas on their own dime? Yeah, no, not at all. A lot of time with social media, you're shouting into a void. You are. Twitter is a bubble. It's like a vacuum. Twitter is great because I go on there and I keep up with some of the stuff like the news and everything, but it should not be required. Oh, hell no. And some people aren't naturally good at it because it takes so many different personalities. Writers, you can have everything from a complete wallflower to someone that is like psychotically social. You can't ask the same the landscape of publishing today is that, yes, you do have to be online. And I totally understand that. And I understand that you are required to do so many things contractually, right? There's a difference between doing that and, and also giving up money. I would never say you have to put a certain amount of your money into your own marketing. I mean, I do, 
but I do it voluntarily. So if someone told me I had to, I would stop doing it. <laughs> if you are the kind of person, which is, I think, and I know a lot of authors, like, they love being online, which is great. But if you have the money that you can actually go out and promote your books, I think that's great. But I just don't think it should be required of you. Oh, hell no. Mm-mm. No. My job is to write the book. Heck yes. If you can, if you're good at it, and if you like it, yes, market and travel and speak and do all those things. But no, it should never be a requirement. It'll help. I mean, there's no doubt that it helps people meet you and, and it gets you out there. But if you are terrified of that, no way should you ever be required. The fact that I knew you for like all these years is why I'm doing this because I generally avoid these things. I just can't do them. And I know plenty of people like that. Writing is a solitary endeavor. And so you can't take those people and ask them to be entertainers. Lastly, writing the book of your heart, even when you know it might not get published, and putting together teams for theme-focused anthologies. Talk about Along the Indigo, because I'm excited. I'm so glad you're excited. Yes, I love it. I think it's beautiful. I've been behind that book for years. (laughs) Your upcoming book, Along the Indigo, will be coming out this year. It's what we call a quiet book in the publishing industry. It doesn't have big explosions or a super catchy hook, but it's a beautiful coming-of-age story with dark overtones, a little romance, and some magic. And I've got my own personal investment in this book. I read it for you a long time ago, like in 2014. Talk a little bit about that book and why it has taken so long, because this is like a book of your heart. This was a personal, like a project book. It is seeing publication and, and you're jazzed and so am I. So talk a little bit about that book and its process. Oh my gosh. Okay. Well, this book is publishing in March of 2018. So it's been four years since Divided came out. That was like a hard four years for me because that was the end of sci-fi in terms of trying to sell it easily. And all of a sudden, I didn't know what to write anymore. Like, I didn't know what came next. My agent no longer liked what I was working on. I honestly was kind of flailing for a couple of years. Like, I honestly didn't know what to do. What do you do when your agent tells you that they're not sure if you're a good fit anymore? This is when I just moved over to Japan, too, and the time difference was not helping. I was no longer immersed in the book world. So it was a really hard time. So that's when I decided to get a new agent, because I think that I changed as an author, as a writer, and my styles have changed. And I wanted to do to kind of not wait around for sci-fi to come back, but I wanted to try something new. The Duel and Divided have cast of characters. They're all diverse because of the world that it's in. But along the Indigo is the first book where I actually made the characters race part of the story. It actually affected the storyline and, and helped shape the plot. So it was more of a factor. And I'm really happy that I decided to make the main characters. Well, the main character is half Chinese and half white. So that was really important to me because... You know, I'm Chinese, and my kids are mixed. Also, she comes from a really small town, and I came from a really small town, and, and I wrote this character. She felt stuck. A lot of people love small towns. I did not love being in a small town. So I still remember those feelings, you know, being a teenager and being stuck and just wanting to get out. I guess in that way, this book is kind of like a book of my heart just because it, it does touch a little bit on how I felt as a teenager. More so than Dual and Divide Editive, of course, because, you know, they're dystopians. It means a lot to me, I guess, just the fact that I really, for a while in between that time, the lull of that, those four years, I really didn't know if I was going to sell another book. But, you know, you always hear that. You have to sell a book every year. You have to publish a book every year, right? And do you know how hard that is? Like, not even the fact that even if you were successful, people don't know about the fact that you are literally revising multiple times, having things in the pipeline, which makes sense. But at some point, you know, you've you got to stop. You can't do the book a year. It's not realistic. I mean, 
there's no way you can edit a book and really revise a book really well a year. Like, I just don't think it's possible. Some people do it. I don't know how. They're freaking like superheroes or something, but I just can't do it. I like you, Mindy. I'm just really, really happy that this book is coming out. I have a great editor, um, Anne Hetzel of um, Abrams. I think it's an interesting point that you make. We all work differently. Like you said, I have a book a year for this year and next year. I had two books a year. Pace was breakneck. It was insane. But that's how I work and that's how I thrive. And I know plenty of people that are exactly the opposite. Like I'll tell them my schedule and they're like, that would actually kill me. I couldn't do it. Like I always tell people I'm like a deep sea creature. The more pressure that's on me, the better I operate. Like if you took me out of high pressure, I, I flail. There are writers like you and I think my critique partner is the same way. If they've got that, they know that there are things bearing down on them. It doesn't motivate them. It's more stressful. In this industry, you have so many different types of creative personalities, and some of them need a different kind of schedule. Whereas it's like, when I have nothing to do, I'm not doing well. If I'm not writing, I kind of need to in order to be healthy, but I'm not going to do it unless there's a pressure on me to do it because we're also, all of us, excellent procrastinators. Your pace is like an exception. It's an exception. There were definitely moments when I was in the grind. Like at one point, I had four different projects up in the air. First pass pages on one, copy editing another, editing, edit letter another, and then drafting something new. And it was a little much. I mean, I'm not going to lie to you, it was a bit much. I think like recently, the last couple months, it's kind of been more like that for me just because I have so many projects up in the air right now. I actually don't mind that. But what I find really hard when it gets to be that busy is the drafting process because I can't sit down and think. That's the, that's the one thing I think that I really fail at is being able to draft when I'm multitasking other things versus editing versus revising the first rough draft when you need to be in that book constantly. That is what I find really hard because that gets interrupted. No, you're right. And, and when the pressures of the outside world is what's forcing you into that fictional world. It's not organic and it doesn't help. I'm not feeling this right now because you know why? I've had to take a break for four weeks to do something else and this is really hard to get back into. And I think that's a skill though and I think you learn that skill. Yeah, I'm really good at compartmentalizing. When it's time for me to write that novel, I wrote a book. I'm not sure when it's releasing. It is sold, but it's about a girl lost in the Smokies. One character alone in the woods for 60,000 words. I can't be sitting there thinking, oh my gosh, I got to worry about this contract. I got to think about this. This is a completely organic, natural world where there is one person in their head all the time. And in order for me to write that well, I have to be in the same headspace. And I can't be sitting there thinking, I got to get this contract signed. I got to do this. I got to get that email sent. It's like, no, I have to be in the woods. You got to flip those switches. You got to learn how to flip your switches. I got to learn to flip my switches because I love being busy, but it's hard for me to flip that switch from drafting to everything else. Drafting is the one thing that kills me. So I got to learn. I want to talk about some of those other projects that you mentioned. You're an editor and contributing author for the upcoming A Thousand Beginnings and Endings, which is a YA anthology of reimaginings of East and South Asian mythology, folklore, and fairy tales. So tell us a little bit about that project and how it came about. I'm so excited about the anthology, actually. Okay, so I'm working with Ellen. Ellen O. You know Ellen because we were all debuted together in 2013, and we were all luckies, and we were all part of the 13ers. Remember the 13ers? You bet. That was awesome. She did the whole We Need Diverse books. She was a co-founder. So she's just an overall amazing person, and I'm really lucky to be able to work with her on this. And uh, what happened was we were just emailing back and forth a lot of the Asian stories that we have. A lot of them are written by white people. And we were just talking about how we wish that there are more Asian stories in YA written by Asian people. I only grew up with Greek and Roman mythology. That's all I knew. 
Asian mythology is a whole other thing that nobody knows. It's not nearly as popular, but let's just do a project where we can get all that stuff out there for readers and have it be part of mainstream reading instead of having it be like a niche Asian book in the, in the Asian section of the library and sold. And, and it's been a great project to work on so far. And we're just really excited about it. Who are some of your contributing authors for that? So we got Melissa Dela Cruz, we got Julie Kagawa, Roshani Chokshi, Melissa Wong, Elliot Dobadard. And there was another very recent announcement about another anthology that you're spearheading called Hungry Hearts. It dives into the intersection of family culture and food in the lives of teens in a series of interconnected short stories set to publish summer of 2019. So when you're working with a group of authors, instead of an anthology where each short story stands alone, you're writing short stories interconnect with different authors writing each short story. How do you do that? How do you raggle all the authors together? Is there a lot of G chats and Skype calls? How does that work? But we're still figuring it out. I'm working with Caroline Tung Richmond. She's another YA author that you probably know. She made her debut in 2014. She's awesome. And she's Chinese like me. And we're working with uh, Simon Shuster. And the editor, Jennifer Ung, is Cambodian. So we're all talking about food all the time because we love food. And it's really big to our culture, right? So right now, it's still new because basically it's me and Caroline emailing each other a lot, trying to lay down the groundwork for all the stories and how we can connect them. You know, the funny thing is because literally if you ask me like two months later, I would know more. <laughs> so right now I'm thinking, like, yeah, basically all we do is email back and forth saying, should we do this? Should we do that? Basically the gist of how we're doing it right now. Definitely a challenge having them in, having the stories connect. It's going to be a shared setting. Everybody's story is going to take place in the same setting, but we still want to have some kind of character interaction. So we're still kind of laying out the groundwork. It's going to be different and it's going to be really interesting, I think. But it sounds awesome. I saw it in my Publishers Weekly Children's Bookshelf email announcements. So it's really cool that you got that kind of high shelf attention already for it. Me and Caroline, we were talking about the Joy Luck Club, which, you know, spoke to us because, you know, being a Chinese, but there was no YA version of that. Wait, why is there no YA version of this book? It would have meant a lot to us as teenagers to have had these books. So I usually end out asking for your social media stuff so that people can follow you. But I know, like you said, you're not really that into the social media right now, which is cool. So do you have like a blog or an, do you have an email newsletter that you can direct people to or a site? I'm on Twitter, but not consistently. I'm on Facebook, but really rarely, even though I do update my Facebook author page. I am on Instagram, which I'm actually still enjoying. So you could probably find, you could find me there. I have a website. So, and my website's updated, but otherwise, yeah, email me. Like, if you have any, like, just email me, because that's probably the best way to reach me. Cool. I love it. Thank you so much for having me. You're awesome. Writer, Writer, Pants on Fire is produced by Mindy McGinnis. Music by Jack Corbel. A special thank you to fellow authors Alyssa Palombo and R.C. Lewis, as well as patron Stephen Avery for helping to make this episode possible. If you find the blog or podcast helpful, please consider showing your support by visiting patron.podbean.com forward slash writer, writer, pants on fire and making a donation. I'm your host, Mindy McGinnis, and we'll be back next week with another episode of Rider Rider Pants on Fire, where authors talk about things that never happened to people who don't exist.